<clears throat> so turn your Bibles to Job chapter 36. And uh, I, I know it's a, it's a jam-packed Sunday morning, but we will be covering two chapters in Job, as we sometimes will have to do. And, uh, but I, I think it will be helpful to us. And let me ask you this. <clears throat> so let's say that you invited me, right, to come and preach for, I don't know, your Bible study, um, uh, your church, if you're not a member of this church, or some other thing. And, and one of the things you told me was, is Nam, um, as you come, I just want you to know we have been, um, we have been inundated with, with just sorrow and difficulty. You know, we've lost uh, uh, key members of our church to cancer. We, you know, we have all this sadness. Uh, um, the downturn in the economy has affected the vast majority of our people. There's so much that's going on, and they are so um, overwhelmed by the difficulties of their current circumstance in life. So in that context, what, what do you think you want to preach to them? And if I said to you that, that I would preach on the, the magnificence or the greatness of God, I think you would say, as a good Christian, oh, okay, yeah, that, that sounds wonderful, you know? But in your heart, you might be thinking, yeah, but is there something not more, mm, you know, something more helpful, and something that's more, like, practical? And I would challenge that notion that we have to think that what we need in life and in the struggles and the suffering of our lives is just a how-to, right? Take deep breaths. I'm trying to think of all the things you must do when you're anxious or in trouble. Take deep breaths, stretch it out, stretch it out, right? Eat a healthy meal. I, I don't know. I mean, we are prone to think that if we could, by our own imagination or power, influence how we are feeling, thinking, and how our life is going, then that's the kind of talk we need. I think even us as believers, as believers in a God that is great and magnificent, we tend to fall into this notion that what we need is a motivational speaker, right? And not a preacher of God's word. Elihu, as we have been watching and, and as we have been listening to his three speeches so far and now his fourth, he will, he will end climactically with a final exhortation. This is Elihu's final speech, and it's all about God's greatness in the midst of suffering. He is doing exactly what I just uh, gave you that illustration about. He is going to speak into Job's pain, and in the midst of Job's pain, and he's not minimizing Job's pain. In fact, the difference between Elihu and the three friends is the three friends assume that all of his pains are a result of his sin. Elihu is saying, no, I, I believe him. I think that these pains have come to him. This suffering has come into his life, not because of sin, but because of his suffering, he is starting to wander into sin. His attitude towards the Lord has been more, more, more skeptical, more questioning, more rebellious, more challenging. Lord, why don't you listen to me? If you would give me my day in court, you would see that I am righteous. Lord, how could this happen to me? Lord, there are wicked people that are thriving, and look at me. I mean, on and on and on it goes, and it was subtle at first, but in his speeches, it becomes pretty clear that as he is losing hope and suffering, he's beginning to unintentionally start to point the finger at God. And this is what Elihu is addressing. His first speech, right, 
answer Job's concern that God has been silent. He won't answer me. He doesn't speak. And Elihu said, no, God does speak. He speaks in prophecy. He speaks through your conscience. He speaks in suffering. He speaks to save, and he speaks for your good. He doesn't have to, to speak to you directly to answer every question that you have. In his second speech, Elihu um, was addressing the question of, of God not being fair. And it is one of the more theological speeches that he gives. And in it, his whole point is that if you deny God justice, if you call him unfair, then all of his godhood evaporates. And that is a dangerous place for you to be. If you want to reduce God to a very strong human nature, that's what you do. You call him unfair. You let, let him know that he's blind, that he's missed a few things. Because then he just he looks like Zeus or any of the mythological gods. He looks like a capricious, very human, right? Very emotionally unstable, powerful being. And he's saying, this is not our God. In the third speech, Elihu challenged basically the prosperity gospel. The question of what is the point of being righteous if the righteous are going to suffer just like the wicked? And Job directed, um, or, or Elihu directed Job um, to a radical God-centeredness, to see God and to stop being self-centered and to recognize the very maybe uncomfortable truth that there is a God and He matters so much more than you. And this is fourth and final exhortation. is the longest and covers two chapters and we are going to have to cover it in a very uh, fast clip. But nevertheless, hopefully what comes through this is that in the midst of suffering, for those that believe that there is a God, the God of Scripture, His greatness is sufficient to speak to us in the midst of suffering and to remind us that this isn't all there is. That is so necessary for every one of us to hear. All of us who walk by faith will suffer, right? Will suffer loss, will suffer disappointment, will suffer difficulties and trials in the course of this life. And as we do, it is not a question of how strong you are, how intelligent you are, how, how spiritually powerful you think you are. It comes down to who God is. And I think that's why Elihu's final speech is about God's greatness and suffering. Let me give you a little overview of how we're going to approach this. Yeah, there's five points. Speaking on God's behalf. Um, God applies perfect justice. God appeals to the righteous sufferers. And God acts powerfully uh, on all creation. And then the conclusion is God is gloriously above reproach. And that's kind of where we're going this morning. I won't read us the two chapters so that we might just kind of dive right in, but let us pray so that the Lord would prepare us to receive his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the glory of your scriptures. Um, we do want to pray and recognize, Lord, um, that uh, um, so much is wrong in this world. We, we, we have uh, uh, considered, Lord, ministries like Open Arms that stands in the gap um, for those innocent lives. And we thank you as churches across this country um, make mention of the sanctity of life. But Lord, even in speaking that, we recognize that just a few miles away from us is a terrible tragedy. And um, 
Individuals were killed by gunfire um, last night. And we lift up those families um, as they mourn the loss, which feels senseless and broken. And Lord, we, we recognize that there is so much that is wrong in this world. Um, and yet you are a powerful God. You are a good God. And it's hard for us sometimes to imagine that in your sovereignty and in your wisdom, you allow so much that is hurtful to occur. So would you renew our sense of your greatness? It help us not to, to minimize you or to shrink you down to the size of something that is manageable and magical and good for our purposes. But instead, help us to realize that you are God and in being God, that we must shape our will and our affections towards you. We must wait on you and trust that there is no one else that we should trust with the, with the events and uh, um, the difficulties, the blessings, everything, the course of life. There's no one we should trust better than the all-knowing, all-perfect, and all-righteous God. We praise you for how you've given us Jesus Christ and how in your sovereignty you have called us to life through him. We ask that we lean into that gospel truth so that we might suffer in a way that is righteous and good acknowledging the goodness of our God and his love for us eternally. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, as we open in this particular um, last speech, his speech is organized in a way that's very helpful. He has an intro, he has his main kind of points, and then he has that conclusion. And the intro is verses one through four. It's about this individual who is speaking on God's behalf. Look at verses one through four with me. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And again, you can see how critics of Elihu, who feel like Elihu is kind of this blustering, young, very prideful individual, might take phrases like the end of that, one who is perfect and knowledge is with you, and kind of feel like, man, this guy is just arrogant. But I think he's trying to speak as the mouthpiece of God. I believe, at least my understanding of Elihu, is that he is like a prophet. Not he is like. He is a prophet, and he speaks on God's behalf. He is, he is priming the wall. Most of you guys will hire painters because you guys don't know how to do stuff around your house. But priming the wall means that you put a certain layer of, of actually, I, gotta admit, I don't know exactly what it's made of, right? <laughs> made of paint and some other stuff, sealant, right? But it primes the wall, so what it does is it seals it at the same time as casting kind of this whitewash on it so that when you splash your magnificent color on top of that, right, it sticks and nothing bleeds through. That's called priming the wall, priming the paint, right? Priming whatever you're trying to paint. And that's what Elihu is. He's like John the Baptist was before Jesus arrives. He's a voice in the wilderness kind of reminding people, hey, wait a minute, there is another direction that maybe you ought to look, not just to yourselves, but up towards the Lord. And having done that, after this final speech, there is no response from Job. In fact, there's been no response from Job to any of his four speeches. There's no response or, or just kind of a rejoinder from any of the friends. They have nothing to say. This young man has spoken in such a way that all of them must be thinking, 
okay, maybe there's something to this. Regardless of what it is that has taken place, he has spoken in a way that is both forceful and true and enough to elicitate them to to consider carefully the things that he is saying about who God is. And instead of any individual man of wisdom stepping into the arena and giving him a rejoinder, God steps in and kind of expands on the same stuff that Elihu has primed so that God can come and create his masterpiece. So the intro is simply this. He says that he has a role. He says in verse 1 and 2, in particular in verse 2, I still have something to say on God's behalf. He is God's mouthpiece, so that's his role. He speaks of his authority. He says that his knowledge, verse 3, is come from afar, and that probably means that his knowledge is heaven-sent. A place like Jeremiah 23, 23 says, Am I a God at hand? declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Right? There's something far away in the sense that there is something transcendent, and he's saying that's where my knowledge comes from, from the Lord, is what I'm understanding him to be saying in verse 3. He says, and ascribe righteousness to my maker. He wants to make sure that Job's charge, that God is being unfair to him, is answered. That's his intention. So he has a role. He has, he has demonstrated authority. He speaks of his intention. And then finally, verse 4, of his reliability. Truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And that term perfect, you should take more in the sense of like our, our New Testament concept of perfect, complete. He's saying, I'm speaking from a place of completion. He's not saying that I speak with absolutely no error and I am the perfect individual that never hiccups. He is trying to say, right, that he speaks with knowledge and truth that is unerring, is complete, and is helpful. So speaking on God's behalf, that was the intro, and then we move to God applies perfect justice. This is the first part of his actual speech. Verses 5 through 25, and we'll be moving through kind of larger chunks, but this is the logic of Elihu's argument. And that logic is that only one as powerful and as absolutely grand as God can guarantee justice. In other words, if you go to a human judge, he has only the limited capacity of his own understanding, his own mind, his own wisdom to apply justice, right? He has limitations, only the evidence presented before him. He has all these things that kind of can hinder his absolutely perfect justice. There's only one. If you want to say that there is someone that is absolutely fair and does things exactly as it ought to be, paying everybody, right, for their good to the full extent that they ought to be paid, it has to be someone that is so powerful, so all-knowing, much like our God, right? Because for perfect justice... To be done, perfect knowledge, perfect truth, and perfect power must accompany it. And that's exactly who God is. So the first point under that, first subpoint, under God applies perfect justice even to sufferers. Right? Right? Because that's Job's complaint. First point is that God is mighty for justice. Look at verse 5 through 7. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Twice it says that God is mighty. And in, in what he is mighty, like what the sphere of his might is demonstrated, he says this. God is mighty and he doesn't despise anybody. Right? 
I take that to mean that he doesn't act capriciously. You know, like if you're watching a movie and then, you know, in the opening scenes, there's like five friends and they're running around and they're doing stuff and you might look at them and one of them, you might go, dude, I don't like that dude. I don't, I don't like the, the way he's talking. I don't, right? Like, like we cast judgments almost capriciously. But God does not do that. He doesn't just, just out of the blue just despise somebody, right? It's not to say that God doesn't despise sin. He does. But this is speaking of how he responds to people. He is a God that is mighty, but his might does not feel like indifference. doesn't feel like capriciousness. He doesn't treat human beings like they're just rejected playthings. I like this nam. I'll keep him. I don't like this dude, you know, bing, right? That's not the way that the mighty God acts. He, he acts in a way that cares about human beings. Think about the meditation in Psalm 8. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. The psalmist is saying, I look at the universe. I'm astounded. He says, what is man? What is a human being that you are mindful of them? What is the son of man that you care for him? Why would you, the great God and creator, the being for which all things exist, why would you be mindful and care about human beings? It reveals both the psalmist's right? very human understanding, which we would naturally you know, understand and kind of um, agree with. Right? It's our instinct to think like, yeah, if I was that powerful, why would I care about people? And yet God is exactly a lover of his creation, and he is the very creator and the power behind which anything exists. And the fact that anything exists is because God has allowed and ordained it. He is mighty in his knowledge, his understanding, and he doesn't decide to despise any. He is mighty, the second part of verse 5, in strength of understanding, right? His, 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 what he understands, his wisdom, he knows it all. Verse 6 and 7, he does not keep the wicked alive. So see, here's a clear declaration. Elihu is not talking just about God is so nice he is so nice. Not at all. Elihu is saying God doesn't allow the wicked to live. Period. Hard stop. We're done. Right? But having said that small phrase, he speaks of then the afflicted. Verse, the rest of verse 6 and 7. But gives the afflicted their right. Right? He, he vindicates those that are afflicted and oppressed. Verse 7, he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. If there's a righteous, he doesn't just go, oh, man, that's too bad. What else do I have going on? He keeps his eye on those that are righteous. And in fact, with kings on the throne, he will set them forever. He will exalt them. So much to say about God's care for those that are the righteous afflicted. And a simple but absolute statement to say about what God does for the wicked. He doesn't allow them to live. God is mighty, and his might is, is demonstrated even in his just dealings with the wicked and with the righteous oppressed. So, so there's more, right? Um, God instructs through suffering. So we continue this argument in verse 8. He says, and if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, he's talking about the righteous afflicted still. Then he declares to them their work and their transgression that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from inequity. And I think he is implying here what Job may be experiencing. That even though Job is righteous in the midst of his affliction, there is that temptation to transgress. 
you get that, I get that, right? If you get a, a, a cancer diagnosis and you're like 20-something, I get it. The temptation for us is to become embittered. Like, Lord, what? I'm just starting my life, right? If something terrible has happened to family members or you lose uh, the entire family fortune or any kind of number of terrible tragedies and difficulties occur, I get it. Our temptation is to go, Lord, what in the world? I thought you were sovereign. That temptation to transgress in our thinking about who God is and how he should be for us, how his eye on the righteous should be lived out in my life and in my circumstance, that temptation is what, what Elihu is addressing. And he's saying, listen, not only does God know, and not only are you tempted in your suffering, right, to speak arrogantly, to transgress, but verse 10, and you got to catch verse 10. He opens these ears, their ears to instruction and commands that they return from inequity. I think if we're understanding this correctly, Elihu is saying, Job, men like you who are good and righteous followers of Yahweh, when everything is going wrong, like anyone else, you're tempted to question God to become embittered, to be upset, to speak arrogantly about what God needs to do or doesn't do. But even in the midst of your suffering, God opens ears for instruction. And through suffering, he commands that they return from their inequity. Isaiah 50, verse 5, says a similar thing. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. See, Elihu is saying something interesting here. He's saying that he can agree with Job that you are not being punished for some wickedness that you have done that is secret and in the past. But he's arguing to Job that your suffering has caused you to develop some sinful attitudes. And as those attitudes are surfacing and revealing some recesses, right, of rebellion in your own soul that you might not have realized if you were just living the blessed life of Job as you had been living, at least for the first few verses in this, in this wonderful book, right? He's saying, now that that is revealed, let the Lord speak instruction to your soul. Let him speak through your suffering. He goes on. <clears throat> God blesses, the, oh, wait, wait, am I not there yet? No, no, I, I am there, yeah, I am there. God blesses, sorry. I have to make the font smaller to make the, the thing fit, and I'm having more difficulty reading it from this distance. God blesses, and I'm so dumb, I have it right here. I could just, I apologize. <laughs> I just realized after years of doing this, I do have it printed out right here. God blesses through adversity. So not only does God instruct us in the midst of our suffering to repent and to receive instruction and to remember Him and to remember ourselves, right, and to find faith renewed, but God also blesses us in the midst of our adversity or through our adversity. It says, verse 11, if they listen and serve Him, so these righteous, right, sufferers, if they listen and serve Him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. Their end is good, right? That's not different from what Job's friends have said. That's not different from what Job has said. But that's Job's complaint. I'm going to die. Here's the end of my days. It doesn't look that good. 
And Elihu is saying, yeah, that is the principle, right? That's the, the, the retributive principle, right? Good gets good because God is sovereign. Bad gets bad because God is in control and his justice is perfect and he doesn't miss a thing. Verse 12, but if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. I like verse 13. I like it in a way that like, I'm not like, oh, that's wonderful, but I like it like, oh, man, that's, that's good and that's terrible. The godless in heart cherish anger. Is that a good phrase? The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. So there are individuals that are suffering, and their godlessness in heart is demonstrated by the fact that they cherish. They find it delectable, right? They find it delightful. They have an appetite to be angry, and they will not cry for help. Right, Their exceeding pride puts God at a distance even when he binds them. Even when it is clear that God is the one that is trying to teach them, is trying to guide them through their adversity. I don't know why I'm having a hard time saying that. Verse 14, they die in youth. He's talking about the tragic end of of such godless hearts. They die in their youth and their life ends amongst the cult prostitutes. Vice and death await them. Verse 15. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. It is interesting because paradoxically there, there is an adversity gospel. Prosperity gospel, right? No, 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 right? Adversity gospel. Apparently, yes, right? There's an adversity gospel that goes far deeper than the prosperity gospel. That, that, that there is a learning, there is a grace that is bestowed and that God can bless through adversity. I, I would venture to guess that if we gathered all of your testimonies, you Christians in the room, right? And said, how did you come to faith? And, and if you came to faith at a young age, it might be a different story. But if you came to faith, right, in your college or maybe later years, especially the later, like you've kind of established your life and you have a sense of what life was going to be, etc. I guarantee you that there was at least some adversity that God used to direct you to himself. That's how God works. Right? Even Hebrews 5.8 says that although he was a son, talking about Jesus Christ, he learned obedience through what he suffered. His obedience is demonstrated through the suffering of Christ. We can say that Christ was always obedient. He was always a follower of the Father. And I think that's absolutely true. But the testing out of that, right, would be what if he has to do something he doesn't want to do something that he would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane to try to avoid, if at all possible, and yet on the other side, come out with, yet, Father, your will not mine be done. I think that demonstrates, right, an obedience, a blessing that is proven in adversity. And this is where Elohim is going. He is saying, Job, I get it. You are having a hard time. And it's causing you to question how much God is for you. You recognize his greatness, you recognize his power, you recognize his goodness, and you're wondering, what in the world, Lord? And Elihu is saying, listen, God never fails to apply perfect justice. He uses might, right, to condemn the wicked and to bless the righteous sufferer. 
He, but he wants to instruct you in the midst of your suffering. He has a purpose in it. He wants to bless you through some various adversities. He has a purpose in it. God is not done, and nor is he limited to only giving you blessing like a reward, like your rat in a maze where he puts a little cheese here so you run here, and a little cheese here so you run here. He is able to grant to you some suffering and pain so that he might reveal himself and your need for him all the more. His defense of God's justice is that God can do anything he wants, including using that difficulty in your life, right? For his purposes and for your edification. Dude, that's a hard sell. I mean, it sounds nice, like, as I say it now. And even as I'm saying it, I'm like, yeah, amen, that's a... Elihu, that's my boy. That's that he's saying right, speaking truth, right? Dropping knowledge. And then something will happen, some tragedy happen in my life, and I'll be like, Man, Job was right, right? God, God, I don't know if God knows exactly what he's did he forget who I am? Does he is hello, God? Are you there? That's Job. And we should have great sympathy for Job. And Elihu speaks a pretty harsh truth. He he's not the, the soft and and gentle kind of preacher, right? He, he's going to come at him a little bit, but speaks truth and hopefully as helpful, right? So God applies perfect justice and the God appeals to righteous sufferers. This is particularly, he appeals to Job. Look at verses uh, 16 through 25. We'll begin in verse 16. Enticing the sufferer from sinning. Verse 16, he also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. There's a lot he says there. But he's saying this. That God has lured you, allured you, right? Has enticed you out of distress. Um, The NIV translation. The NIV often um, is a translation I really enjoy in terms of our English translations. For, uh, for the Hebrew, especially Hebrew poetry, because they're more dynamically kind of, their philosophy is not to go, okay, this is what Hebrew says. Let me try to capture that structure and be as literal as I can in our, in our English. Their, their, their dynamic equivalence, their, their philosophy is, let me take this phrase in Hebrew and try to figure out if I could say it in English that makes much more better flow. What you lose there sometimes is the precision of a word-for-word translation sometimes, Right? But what you have is you get the sense of a phrase, especially a poetic phrase, that I think is, uh, is, is kind of enlightening. Now, Job 36, 16, the NIV says this, God is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. Right? It's a good, it's a good and helpful translation. The idea is this, is that God is alluring or trying to entice you away from 
the jaws of distress. That's literally where it says out of distress. It says in the Hebrew, the mouth of distress. It's almost like, you know, like that, the, the, the scene where like a giant sea creature is coming up and his mouth is open to swallow you. It's like you are dangled right there. And God is, God is trying to lure you away from that before the jaws snap close on you. And to take you to a broad place where you're not all cramped up, right? Where there's freedom. I think that's the illustration of a wide and broad and open area. And a table that is full of fatness. I know some of you guys, diet conscious people, are mad at the scriptures and at God's word. And that's so wicked. That's so wicked. God loves fatness. He does. He does. He's given us fat. The idea of fatness is that it is rich and enjoyable, flavorful. That's the point. And so NIV says, laden with choice food. He is offering you a banquet feast. He would lure you away from the enticement to be swallowed up in your affliction. But you, talking to Job, verse 17, full of judgment on the wicked. This means either that Job is full of judgment on those that are wicked and getting away with it, which he has been. He's spoken about that, how the wicked are surviving and thriving even though the righteous are suffering, right? It could be that. It could be that, or he could be speaking, right, of verse 17, you are full of the judgment of the wicked, meaning that you are full of a judgment that is characteristic, right, of the wicked, not on the wicked. In which case, Elihu has already said that Job can be complaining in a way that sounds like wicked men who think lesser of God, right? I'm not sure which of those that I would favor. I think I lean a little bit towards the idea that, that he, is, um, he is speaking judgment on the wicked. But because of this, verse 17, the rest of it, judgment and justice sees you. You are consumed by what is fair and not fair. Look at that, unfair, unfair, unfair. Look at me, unfair, unfair, unfair. You're consumed by this. You're upset by this. You can't shake this. In verse 18, a warning to him, beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. Your anger at that injustice has kind of twisted out of control to the point that you're starting to scoff God. You're starting to say, God, you should know better. If anyone knows better, you should know better than to let this kind of mess still happen in our world. Beware lest wrath, your wrath, entice you to scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. The big, the, the, the cost, the difference between, you know, righteousness and reality. Don't let that cause you to turn your heart. Verse 19, will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress? This is talking about Job. Like, can you cry out enough that you will rescue yourself from distress? Or will the force of your strength deliver you? The answer is No. You can be angrier. You, you can demonstrate force. You can, you can get people to, to, to rally together. Will that be sufficient to remove distress? And his point is no. And then verse 20, what, what if I say, okay, well, I can't, I don't have the human means to overcome, you know, everything that I think is wrong. Or something, what if I take my life? Ellie says, do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Right? Job has already said on a number of occasions 
He says, you know, verse seven, uh, Job 7, 21, For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. I'm gone. Job 10, verses 18 through 22, Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone. He's talking to God. Then I may find a little cheer. He's given up to the point of wishing that he could die. And Elihu is saying, don't, don't long for the night when people vanish in their place. He says, take care, verse 21. Do not turn to inequity. Do not turn to sin. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Instead of learning, experiencing, and trusting God in affliction, which, which Job certainly began to do. And again, I want to say this is complex. It's not like Job has abandoned faith altogether. He's struggling with that. But Elihu is pressing in on the fact that you need to be careful that you're not turning towards your sin more and choosing that over this current affliction. I think the implication is that it's right for you to suffer in this affliction. It's affliction. But it's not right for you to angle affliction to self-pity, self-righteousness, and ultimately to blaming God. God is enticing the sufferer away from their sin. That was the point A. Point B, this is Elihu reminding, right, reminding the sinner of God's greatness. Verse 22 says, Behold, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? Is there anyone that could tell God, God, you, you need to do a little better job with this, right? We can say that about each other for almost anything. You know, you come over to my house and you say, hey, you cooked me a great meal. I'm going to do the dishes. As I watch you, I'm going to say, hey, you know, you could do a little better job with that, Right? I'm very particular about how the dishes go to the dishwasher. I want you to do it a certain way, right? Like, like you could do a better job. Can anyone tell God you could do a better job with anything? The answer is obviously no. He is exalted in power. What teacher is like him, right? No one has prescribed him the direction that he should go or say, uh, Lord, you, you need to make a left there. You're going the wrong way. So remember to extol his work of which men have sung, all mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. We need to recognize, right, that all human beings ought to worship the one true and living God. He is that great. So he's reminding him, reminding them, that sinner, that suffering sinner, right, of God's greatness. What we need, it turns out, at least in Elihu's mind, and I think in the mind of God in Scripture, is that in the midst of your difficulty, struggle, etc., you need a bigger picture of God, not a bigger picture of yourself. The bigger picture of yourself is natural. Lord, why is this happening to me? Of all the people in the world, you know, how come I have cancer? You know? But dude, like, one in three of us will get cancer in this lifetime. So there's a lot of other people just like you. Why am I the only one? You know? How come I'm the only one of my friends and I have a girlfriend, right? Not getting married. Right? There's so much stuff that we just self-focused and self-pity. And it's just so odd when you speak of a gospel that transcends everything. Of a God who is so much greater than anything. And we shrink him down to size. Every time we become so self-focused, it's all about me, myself, and I. 
So the introduction was Elihu speaking on God's behalf, right? And God applies perfect justice. We saw that. In this one, God appeals to, right, to the righteous sufferer. So it's a direct appeal to Job and to those that are suffering, that are people that should be walking by faith. And now God acts powerfully on all of his creation. This is a long section. It goes from uh, 36 verse 26 all the way to 37 verse 20. And it's just a series of things talking about how great God is. Like his unsearchable greatness in verses 16 to 21. Behold, verse 26, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. We don't even have to say much about that. That we cannot fully and absolutely know him. And he is endless and eternal in terms of his existence. Can I just say this though? In all of eternity future, we human beings, created, made in his image, will never get to the point where we're like, ding, hey dude, it's been like 15 trillion years, but... I have fully comprehended God. High five, high five, right? We'll never get there. Because God is an infinite being and is unsearchable in terms of his greatness and his eternality. Verse 26, or 27 and 28. For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist and rain, which the sky pours down and drop on mankind abundantly. You know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the hydrocycle. Like the ancients seem to know some business, right? We think the ancients are all dumb. You know, they're probably like, hey, here's the Ten Commandments on rocks. Why is it on rocks? Because I don't know how to write, right? We think they're all dumb, but they actually understand and have explored like how God works in the universe. And verse 27 and 28 literally says that God draws up the drops of water into the sky and then they distill his mist in rain and then the sky pours down and drops that rain on mankind abundantly. It is an illustration of how great God is, how much we do not know, and how unsearchable His eternality actually is. The hydrocycle, right? Evaporation, condensation, precipitation. I'm trying to think if I missed something. I, you know, drink it, drinkitation. I don't know. I, I probably missed something there, right? I, I, for some reason, I thought it was four. Maybe it's three, right? But the whole point is that all of that is by God's design. He is that good. He is that clever. And no one tells him, oh, you got to do this better. Verse 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. So it's like, do you understand why the clouds form here? And then it's a thunderstorm and then lightning. It's like God is throwing lightning down, right? Like when and why that happens. How amazing is that? And when it says that phrase, and covers the roots of the seas, I think it means that it covers, meaning like it flashes out even the depths of the seas. Like it's that strong and powerful and brilliant, this lightning. And God just tosses it about because he is that powerful. In verse 31, For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hand with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that it rises. Right? It, there are so many things that, that God gives in terms of judgment and food, like the storms, Right, because storms can judge, storms can give food, right? California, we, we've been having mudslides, right? Because there's so much rain for a period of time. But then again, we need rain, and that has kind of helped us so that we're not like crazy droughted. I don't even know that's a verb, but we are, you know, we're in drought and it's insane drought to just kind of just drought now. 
right? Like that has happened because of rain. So there is, there is, you know, there is good and there is danger in it, but God is the one that commands it all. We're going to move faster. This is verses, uh, um, where are we at here? Um, chapter 37, verse 1. Again, it's still going on with the greatness, the unsearchable greatness of God in his creation. And verse 1 of chapter 37 says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice. Right? At this point, I suspect that it's possible that Elohim is rifting on the fact that there is an actual storm. Right? Because he speaks as if, as if, hey, listen, listen, listen to that. Like, listen to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He's trying to say that even in the thunder, in the lightning, right, in all the display of the power of creation, it's God speaking. Listen to terms like his voice, his mouth. Verse 3, under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For so, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man and all men whom he made, he uh, may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattered winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. There's so much we could say about all the particulars, but it's a beautiful poem just, just illustrating God's power in the midst of an amazing storm. Thunder is like his voice. Lightning is like his message, right? Um, the breath of God brings ice and freezes over large portions of water, right? He loads the thick clouds with moisture and then scatters lightning from them. It's an amazing thing that God is and how he works. He's unstoppable, unrestrained, incomprehensible, irresistible, overwhelming, in perfect sovereign control. Verse 12. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. And listen to verse 13. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. I love that because Elihu is saying, listen, how does God operate in his universe? In such a way that sometimes he has to correct the land. I think that's literally the rain for our drought. Sometimes I have to make some corrections here. Sometimes it's just for love. This farmer needs some rain. Well, let me cast him a little bit of rain, right? He's been praying for that. God's the one that causes it to happen. Whether he's trying to correct, whether he's trying to give love, all purposes are God's purposes. And that is his unsearchable greatness. You see what, what Elihu is doing? He's saying, Job, right? let's remember who God is. And then maybe that helps us take a step back from us going, God, you really should show up. You should prove me right. You know, I'm righteous here. You know it. Come down. Get down here, God. Right? Like we're calling our kids down for dinner. Or maybe we should think about who God is and everything that he did, does. He literally juggles billions of souls and every impact of every circumstance and he doesn't drop a thing. Right? So, 
I, I think where uh, Elihu is going with this, right, is he is encouraging Job to recognize God's unsearchable greatness and what that should lead him to um, is for Job to appreciate his incapacity to question God's motives. He says, hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command, command upon them? Talking about, you know, the storms. And causes the lightning of his cloud to shine. Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because when the earth is still because of the south wind, talking about the Shiraka winds, when it comes and the earth is hot, and then you know you, you can't you can't can't do anything about it, your garments are hot, it's just too hot, you can't control the heat or the weather. Verse 18, can you like him spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Now it's talking about if there was a mirror like, you know, like in the San Fernando Valley, in like late July, it feels like God is just shining a mirror, like how you used to, you know, use a magnifying glass on ants. It feels like that, right? It just feels like hot and oppressively hot. And he's like, can you do that? Of course not. God does. Verse 19, teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. He's saying, listen, Job, tell me then, what is it you want to teach God? Because we can't, we can't teach him anything. Our knowledge is darkness compared to his light, right? Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? He's saying, so, so let, let me understand you, Job. You want to tell God, God, please come down because I have something to tell you, right? I got something that I got to get off my chest. And he's saying, are you a human being or are you a God? Because you're about to be swallowed up whole. Do you guys remember that classic movie, right? Um, Ghostbusters, right? This weird evil God. These, there's no real gods. This is it's a fake movie, so don't 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 be offended, right? But you know this this fake God, right? Possesses this person, and then is like zapping stuff or whatever. And they're telling the Ghostbusters are telling the God, hey, you got to get out of here. You know, you can't can't be here. And then he says, are you a God? Right? He's like, no. And then they get almost blown off the, the roof and stuff. And then one of the guys yells to the other guy, dude, if anyone asks you, are you a God? The answer is yes. Right? Because the idea is you should have some capacity if you are going to challenge the righteousness, the glory, the ability, the wisdom, the, everything of a God, you ought to have something to offer. And he reminds him, human, human, created, created, limited, limited, Unlimited, right? Job does not have the capacity to question an infinite God, is his point. And we must rush to our conclusion. We've talk, spoken of how um, God applies perfect justice, God appeals to the righteous sufferer, God acts powerfully in all creation as evidence that he is unquestionable, right? And this is his conclusion, verses 21 through 24, which I appreciate. God is glorious above reproach. Look at verse 21. And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. So he's been talking about storms, and he's saying at some point the storms pass. We don't sit there staring at the sun because it's too bright. Verse 22. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. 
the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. You see what Elihu is doing? He's saying, listen, this is God. And if there's anyone that we should trust with those decisions about who should or who shouldn't, right? Enjoy suffering, right? Enjoy blessing. Go through life with a disability or go through life with almost no concern to be born with a silver spoon, right? Like we do not have the capacity to determine who gets what. We don't have that wisdom. We don't have that power. And we certainly do not have that kind of infinite righteousness and abundant justice. That's why men ought to fear God. Because God does have that. And if God has, in his absolute sovereignty, chosen you to be his own, there's, there's no human reasoning for why he would choose me to be his child. But he has chosen some to be his child. All of them do not deserve it. And if you say, well, how about that person? God should really choose that person. I really like that person, right? God is the only one to be trusted with these decisions that are far beyond the magnitude of created beings. He is perfect in power. He's perfect in goodness. He's perfect in righteousness. So fear God. So fear God. Well, we, we need to close off here. But let me just give you an exhortation to make God the primary thing. To give him his place. To recognize his son and to realize that if there is a God and he's perfect in justice and righteousness, we have a problem. And the only solution to that problem is not because I'm just going to do better. I'm, I'm going to become a better person. I'm going to become a better version of myself. No, the only solution is to cry for help, to repent of our sins, and as Jesus Christ, to be our Savior and Lord. And we're covered, not because we deserve it, not because we're good, not because we're intelligent, not because we, you know, we, we might offer something, but because God is God and he has promised all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is the only one to be trusted with eternal decisions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to give us the scriptures this morning and ask that we would continue to learn. And as we meditate upon these things, Lord, these truths over the course of maybe this week or even later today, Lord, may it just be may it resonate in our souls that we are made in your image, made to know and understand something about you, but that you will always be infinitely greater than us. Teach us to trust in you because you are the only being worthy of absolute trust. Pray these things in Jesus' name.